I'm an introvert, not amazing academically. Didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Average at best. And yet you created Spotify. Yeah. Daniel Eck. Spotify founder and CEO. He's not only saved the music industry, he's created a $50 billion company and he himself is worth more than $4 billion. I flunked high school and started my first company. That later got acquired. And you retired at 23. Yeah. First month was fun. Nightclubs, sports car, 20 or 30 girls throwing around money six months in. I realized that this thing I thought I wanted, I just didn't want at all. I was just empty. Just thinking, am I ever going to get out of this depression and what to do in life? What if you can work on something you actually care about? What would you pick? Music. But the industry's going down the drain. I honestly did not think we would succeed. But if we succeed, I knew it was going to be a big thing. Spotify is here. A one-stop shop for music. Higgins, you use Spotify? I love it. I read the journey to that success, had multiple near-death experiences. It was awful. Ran out of money. I lost all of the hair, gained 30 pounds. And the problem was you know, I modeled myself on the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. I run every meeting. I be the best product person. And it just wasn't me. Share the burden with someone. It is so important. We tend to believe the world is more logical than what it is, but it's based on relationships. Be the easiest person to deal with, and you'd be surprised how many problems it solves. One of those problems was Apple. What's your opinion on Apple? Daniel, what is the most important context that I need to know about you to understand the man that sits in front of me today? And when I ask about context, I want to go right back to where you come from and that earliest environment that... I almost, I almost see it like an oven. I see our earliest context as like an oven that mm. baked us into who we are today. What yeah. is that context? I'm a product of a very, very strong single mom. Um, a woman that probably had a ship on her shoulder um, um, against uh, her sibling, her brother, her older brother, who kind of said, you can't do this. You can't raise uh, a child to be productive. Um, and... I think uh, she kind of uh, just, well, hell-bent on making a point uh, of showing that, you know, um, I was going to be successful in her definition and successful meant uh, well-educated, well-read uh, and be able to handle almost uh, anything thrown at me. And just to give you an example of that, while I was brought up in the suburb of Stockholm, very much a working class, rough neighborhood. One of the big things that my mother did was she had me um, doing a pentathlon. And the pentathlon was like the classic pentathlon. So that means fencing, horseback riding, uh, shooting, uh, running and swimming. Um, doesn't sound like what someone basically from the projects <laughs> in, in Stockholm uh, would do, um, but she thought that would be a good sort of uh, wide education for me. Um, and, and pretty much my entire life has been around that. I, I was kind of clumsy as a kid. Um, my, my fine motor skills was pretty good. My rough motor skills wasn't very good. So she enrolled me in like an all-female gymnastics group. Um, you know, I'm an introvert. So she enrolled me in a theater group um, to have me, you know, learn um, how um, to express myself. Uh, and, and so um, I, it, an eclectic childhood, um, but one where she heavily influenced me 
uh, brought me along in almost every context with adults, uh, with professors, like at a very early age and just had me sit, sit along uh, or uh, with just the person from next door uh, who was struggling uh, getting to the next paycheck. And, and I really saw all of those contracts in, in life from a very young age. Did she have any desire for you to become any specific thing? Because you know. uh, I, I, I'm honestly not sure, but I think she wanted me to be broad, um, just in general. Um, so, um, and and I, I think in many families, you kind of have this maybe educational pressure where you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer. Like none of that mattered to my mom. Um, the only thing that mattered, and she kept repeating this, was that you need to become a good human being. Um, and for her, um, if I wanted to study, sure. Um, she thought education mattered and it was important, um, but um, not like in other families. And the only thing, in fact, um, you know, probably influenced Spotify later on was um, I very much come from a music family. My my grandfather was an opera singer. My grandmother was um, an actress in theater, but also um, jazz pianist. So um, like music education was. Weirdly enough, like the the mm. uh, premier education that was focused on for me, and then all the other stuff, she was basically only important that I showed effort. Um, I I had a pretty easy time in school, and so uh, she constantly kept pushing me because she felt that I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't making enough of an effort, uh, no matter what. So it wasn't about the grade. I could come home with a straight A. Uh, she would still be like, "Well, did you really make an effort?" I don't think so, and um, and um, <laughs> and and so for her, it was kind of always that thing about like just pushing and making the real effort. So she cared more about less about the outcome and more about how much of your potential you were yes. realizing. Yeah, very much so. So on school, then you you referenced that she kind of identified you were an introvert early on. But then I think you said you had a good, you had an easy time in school. Mm. Typically, people that are introverted, that are um, an only child at the time that they go off to school, often they struggle a little bit yeah. because you know finding friends and fitting into social groups. And I read somewhere else that you don't love small talk; mm. you tend to gravitate towards the people that you know. Yeah. What was school like for someone for a kid like that? Well, I I think you know. Um, I think there are many types of introverts. Let's begin with that. And I can switch it on when I have to. Uh, and certainly I think the theater helped me. Um, you know, I can be very, project a lot of things if I like to uh, and, and be a force of nature, but it doesn't come easy. That requires tons of energy, whereas others get energy from like the room and they're like very excited. It's just not me. Um, for me, anything with anyone I'm not comfortable with is, really taking a lot of energy. Um, um, but it, but I think the easy time in school was just, uh, I loved learning. I've always loved learning. So, um, you know, you put be putting in an environment where you're constantly uh, being forced to learn new things wasn't a very hard thing for me. And um, I have a very good, um, I used to have a very good memory. I don't <laughs> have it anymore, but I was able to memorize very easily the concepts and the things that we talked about in school. And so um, I think in that end, it was very easy for me. And then again, because my mother tried to make me very broad, um, the positive and the negative of that aspect is I could kind of be in any social group. 
I could be with the athletes. I wasn't the best athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but it worked. Uh, I could be in the musicians group as well with any of the people who are really good at arts. Um, and I, you know, I probably wasn't the best at any of that stuff either, but it was pretty decent. But I could also be in the math group. I probably wasn't the best at math, but I was pretty decent. Mm. And um, that, to be honest, is kind of the story of my life. Um, you can kind of plug me in anywhere. I won't excel at practically anything, but I'll hold my fort. And that's, I think, both a blessing and a curse. The blessing is in is that it's very easy for people to, for me to be able to relate to other people enough where I'm accepted in the group, but it's hard in the sense, the downside with that is that I never really belong anywhere mm -hmm. because I'm not that one-sided um, as an individual. You know, I'm not an artist, I'm not a technologist, um, I'm not a business person. I'm all of that and probably a few other things as well. Um, and, and you can see that very clearly with my friend group too. You'll have artists on the one side and, and you have entrepreneurs on the other end and it's very hard for them to speak to each other most <laughs> times, but I love it. I love um, seeing very creative people. I love, uh, you know, business people and, and scientists mixed together, whereas the scientist gets very, you know, have a hard time uh, found, uh, speaking to an, an artist um, and quite often they're talking past each other. Um, for me, it's just, I love it. Mm. Um, and and that's the blessing and curse. When I speak to people that know you and work with you, they describe you as ambitious. Now, ambition and being ambitious is an interesting word because it's often loaded with this presumption that someone has a desire for a certain outcome. Yeah. Like they're trying to, they're ambitious because they want to be really successful or they want a gazillion pounds. Um, are you ambitious and what does that actually mean to you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ambitious, um, but I probably am ambitious in the, uh, the way my mother taught me to be ambitious, which is the inputs, right? Which is, um, you know, if I see someone with incredible potential that squanders that potential, um, I, um, I ask myself, why, why are you doing this? And why not strive for the great thing? And in so many cases in life, I found that the difference between, you know, aiming super high versus um, aiming just a little bit higher than where you are from an effort perspective is about the same effort. Um, so you might just as well aim higher, you know, this saying of you shoot for the stars and you land on the moon. Um, that is very much kind of my life philosophy. Why not try to do it bigger? Why not try to do it um, even more interesting? And maybe you have to settle for something less, but isn't it more interesting and more fun to try to do the really big, hairy, audacious thing? Not for everyone. <laughs> maybe maybe not, uh, but- You'll I, know that because you'll work with so many people that maybe don't lean into ambition. Yeah, that that's true, but- I, I also wonder if if that's true uh, or whether they're just worried about really testing themselves and understanding where their limits are. So many people are more afraid of failure than they are of success. Uh, and that stops them from even beginning to try, um, right? And, and I find that so many times, like the amount of people I'm sure 
came to you it's like oh it's really good for you but i had the same idea it's like okay well why didn't you do anything about it uh, and and oftentimes it's like well for this and that and that reason and and they talk themselves out of it um but at the very core i believe it comes down to that they're actually more worried about failing than they are about the prospects of succeeding your kids then what would you advise them to do if they were say they wanted to follow in your footsteps in particular or start a business mm. at that juncture where we kind of leave high school yeah and we can either go into like work or university would you yeah. do you think the the university system is a little bit outdated yeah i do um but uh, as with many things um you know I, I don't i don't think it's bad i don't think it's good either i think it depends there are certain people that do well in that structure and and need that kind of rigor of that sort of path to go down and do incredibly well um, against um, you know the essays and the ACIT and they're really good and they're really good with the lectures and then taking the notes and just have that sort of discipline in that area of their life where they do well in that circumstance and then that education then sets them up for greater things so i think it depends i mean if your dream is to become a lawyer then i think you have to go through that path right <laughs> um because it's impossible otherwise i think if you want to be an entrepreneur uh the single best thing you can do is to uh, probably study as many businesses as you can and get as much business exposure in that so what do I mean by that? Uh, well, it can come in by working for businesses uh, that are great, but more importantly, probably working for great individuals um, and learning from them, right? So if you are fortunate enough to be able to do, um, you know, we're talking about this, but um, your behind the scenes mm -hmm. version um, and, and, and being able to like work for you in that and mm -hmm. see you up, up close, it's gonna be invaluable mm -hmm. for that individual to get to do that. Um, because you get to see entrepreneurship from the first row. You get to see what it's like, um, what business aspect, what's, um, you know, how do you do that? How much admin do you need to carry? And even if you're just a fly on the wall, you're gonna learn so many skills that are quite diverse. And and that's the, I think the, the biggest trick about entrepreneurship is like the, the for me, uh, everyone, when they think about the word innovation, they think that it's something entirely novel. Yet for me, innovation, um, I don't know of a single thing that just someone came up with uh, that had no prior grounds. Everything is about putting two or more things in together in a new context. Um, so studying many different things, understanding a little bit about business, understanding a little bit about um, product and how to make that product, um, understanding uh, whatever it is that are drivers uh, from that, I think is important. Um, and that's not to say that university can't do that and it can't be helpful to learning sales and the theory of it, et cetera. Um, but I think that there is many other paths you could take uh, that may even, if you're, um, you know, if you have enough grits and kind of like, are able to put yourself in a situation where you can uh, get in front of the right person, start working for them. Um, so much is in life is around people believing in you and and giving you the right place to grow. Um, and 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 it's it's really serendipitous to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, and, and and I'm certainly a product of all of that. So I, I I think it is not right or wrong. It's just I I dislike how we're talking about it as. It is the way, or 
um, you know, it's not the way. And it's like, no, I think it's more like it works sometimes mm -hmm. for certain individuals. And then for other individuals, it is not the best use of their time. And there are other paths you can take. But educating yourself, even if that's outside of a university and getting a degree concept, that I think is invaluable. And it's the most important thing you can be doing as a young individual about anything you're interested in. I think that's one of the big misconceptions people have about me when they hear I dropped out of university. They think I don't like education. I'm yeah. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I spend all day, like an all, all night till 2 a.m. learning about rockets and AI and all yeah. that stuff. I'm a self-educator, but yeah. the institution of education that is university, for me, I just couldn't stay awake yeah. in that experience. Same, same here. But for another person, it is exactly what they they need because they may not even know what they're interested in. And they feel like I want to have a foundation that gives me a broad base. So uh, again, if a master's of science degree, if, if you know you want to be an engineer, but you're not entirely sure what type of engineer, it's a very broad foundation that will teach you elemental skills that um, you probably will use at some point in time. Uh, I'm not saying you can't go outside of that realm too, but it's great stuff. Um, and if you're wired that way, you do well in that type of environment, uh, great. Um, and there's certain types of people that do that. When young people come up to me and ask me this question about what I should be doing with my life at that early stage, mm. the advice I've started to give, and I want to check how you, how you would change or add or alter this advice, is to try and go and join a startup. So just for context, I'm talking about people that want to be entrepreneurs here. Yeah. To try and go and join a startup that's doing something at the very cutting edge of the world or a wave that's currently coming into shore. So I'd say to young kids like, go and join an AI startup. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say startup is because you're gonna be closer to the decision-making. You're gonna learn more, you can have more exposure than mm -hmm. like if you went and worked at, a, I don't know, a Google or something. Sure. Um, and also it's the cheapest way to fail when you're young, right? Yep. Like you can observe the company fall into the yep. graveyard yep. without there being a huge cost to you. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think that is a tremendous um, uh, opportunity uh, to do that. Um, but again, I've seen other paths work too. Mm -hmm. I've seen people uh, join bigger companies and move around inside of that company and um, get uh, super valuable skills. Um, and then eventually um, kind of break out as an entrepreneur as well. And maybe... Uh, you wanted to save up some money. And obviously, if you join a little bit of a bigger company, you're able to do that and prioritize doing both. And then, you know, once you have that kind of nest egg of sorts, you can then break out. And so, I, I, I don't know. I, it's like the, I used to think, um, and you and I, we were talking about this before, I used to think that, you know, hey, I've got all this advice, I'm gonna just gonna give it. And, and the more and more I, I, I on a personal basis, I'm not sure I'm in a great position to give advice on many things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I try to stay away from it. I can't help myself yeah, when, when I feel like people are doing it, but I try to not do it as much as I do. Um, and it's actually something I'm deeply conscious about because I don't think that there's one path in life. I think that there are many paths in life. And um, of course there are really bad ones, um, but, but some some of the more amazing life stories aren't the obvious ones. Uh, it is not the people even doing the sort of, hey, I joined a startup or I did this and that. It may be the person who spent um, his entire life in a lab 
someone gets so frustrated in the end that they end up breaking out and then forming a company because no one else wanted to do the idea that they had in mind. Or maybe the person who uh, was the least likely to solve that problem, but had really been spending all this time thinking about it uh, and developed this really odd skill while doing their normal day job that then turned out to be really useful to solving this particular problem. And going back to that first company that was acquired at Vertigo, after that was acquired, um, I read that you retired at 23. Yeah. I'm guessing that made you enough money to retire. Yep. And you're 23, which is in 2006, and you're a retired man living what one can only describe as <laughs> any 23-year-old's dream. Yeah. Lots of money. I'm guessing there was some champagne there. I yep. think there was a red Ferrari. How yep. was that for you? It was amazing. <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, all, all jokes aside, I grew up, and, and as I said, I was kind of like always socially accepted, but didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And um, I, um, um, I never had an easy time with uh, girls. Um, not, not a bad time, just not as, as good as if I was widely successful in music or widely successful in sports or any of that stuff. And I kind of had odd interests because I kept, as I said, kind of moving from group to group. Um, and so I, I had this idea uh, in my head um, that I wanted to, you know, be financially independent. Um, I wanted, uh, I thought that once I got to that point, I would start living life. Um, and I thought that, um, you know, uh, I would be more socially accepted and I would find my tribe. Uh, and it's embarrassing to talk about it now, um, but um, you know that was really what I thought. So uh, I thought that uh, if I was lucky and worked really hard, I might be able to retire in my forties. If I worked really hard, but you know, fifties for sure. And and um, so you know, getting to that point when I was twenty-two, actually not twenty-three, it, it was just mind-boggling to me. And um, I had that financial target in mind um, and I thought, well, once I hit that, I'm just gonna like, you know, do something else. And and so as you said, I kind of like started frequenting all the nightclubs, uh, bought a sports car, um, tried to get the girls I could never get before, realizing that yes, I could get them, um, but for all the wrong reasons and they didn't really care about me. Um, and it was kind of a hollowing thing because it was this kind of, oh, was this what I worked for for such a long period of time? And then um, only to find out that, um, you know, it was quite depressing, honestly. I had all these new friends that weren't really great friends at all. Um, luckily, I was able to keep my old friends as well. Um, but I realized that this thing I thought I wanted, uh, I just didn't want at all. And um, what was the symptom? When we say realized, there's typically symptoms psychological yeah. symptoms or um no i i realized it because i i um you know i started getting all these phone calls from people um asking me to come out on friday evenings and saturday evenings uh, and i just i was just empty i just had no energy to do that um and i thought to myself oh this is odd because the old me thought this was what life was all about and i had had girls call me and like, hey, you should really come out. We miss you, all of that stuff. And I realized that I just didn't care. 
and had um, I thought that that was you know this magical moment, and in fact, um, you know, putting on my computer or playing my guitar um, was kind of yeah, this is more me, and so something on the back of my head started forming around like who am I, what do I care about, and it's it's actually in that process I met my co-founder because he was the founder of Trade Doubler and uh, who uh, bought my uh, company. And he too, it kind of the company had IPO'd. He got kicked out of the company. Uh, he he was like a, a hundred times more wealthier than I was. Like he, he he had like the biggest success in tech Sweden at the time, and had everything going for him. But he didn't know what to do with life. And so that was kind of how we bonded. Um, and um, you know, we were watching like old Godfather movies, <laughs> eating crisps um, and, and talking about what to do in life. Uh, and and that was like a real friendship moment, a real turning point. Uh, and he saw um, the same thing that I saw. And, uh, um, you know, that was when I realized that I've been approaching this all wrong. Uh, in fact, I always loved working. It was never about money. Um, I always liked learning. Um, and I would pay to go learn for someone rather than getting paid for it. And But at the same time, I thought work should be hard. That was the thing that I had programmed into me. So work has to be clearly something you not don't enjoy doing. Um, so I thought, well, what if you change all of these parameters? What if you create an environment where you can come in and learn from really smart people all the time? What if you can work on something you actually care about opposed to something that makes money? What if you could have a lot of fun while doing it and not take it too serious? And we started talking and um, we were bouncing ideas. And Martin, my co-founder was like asking me like, well, if you really could pick anything, like what what, what would you pick? And I, I'm, I said to him, well, um, you know, uh, I'd probably pick music, but that's a terrible idea. Uh, and he said, well, why is that a terrible idea? And I said, well, it's a terrible idea because, you know, the industry's going down the drains. It just doesn't work. It's piracy. It's all of these reasons. And he said, okay, um, but but if one would fix it, how would one do? Well, it's kind, of, kind of stupid. They're trying to regulate it. Clearly, you need to build a better product. That's the only thing that's going to work. Because they said, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And it's like, well, I don't know, but maybe you could do this or that. Okay, well, how would that work? Uh, it's like, well, I don't know, but maybe you could do this and that. And how would you make money? Well, I, I think maybe you could pay out based on how much people were listening. I don't know. And then literally after going through why not a uh, hundred time, times, I started realizing that, yeah, why not? And why not give this a shot? And I told him from the beginning, you know, uh, that, um, hey, this is probably going to lose us a lot of money. I have a hard time seeing this ever being a sustainable business. Um, but I'm in. Let's do this. And he said, great, let's do it. Um, and while I was hesitating for some reason, he wasn't. Uh, so he was like, this seems fun. Let's do it. And that gave me enough confidence where I kind of had found a new purpose again. And instantly I stopped responding to all the people who were trying to get me out in the evenings. And I was like, well, I got something to do. And then I went back to work again. And it was like pretty much a week from that moment where I felt like I'm happy again. I haven't felt this happy for 
you know, the better part of a year, because it was about a year when I was going through this transition of, of just having fun, being retired. Um, first month was fun, six months in, depressing. Uh, nine months in, am I ever gonna get out of this depression? To then kind of a year in, finding something else that I truly look forward to, that felt crazy. Um, and I honestly did not think we would succeed, but if we succeed, I knew it was gonna be a big thing. Something really interesting there that I could relate to a lot was this idea that you had a hypothesis about your happiness that had to fail you to know that it was not a valid hypothesis about happiness. And there's so many people, obviously, I mean, I'd assume it's more than half the population are currently pursuing a hypothesis they have about what will make them happy. Mm. That probably, and this is the thing I always wonder is, does it have to fail them for them to know that that's not the right pursuit? In my case, it did. It had to fail me. Yeah, I had to fail the anticlimax, and yeah. then I had to go and buy the the big house, and then was there for nine months and got out of it as quick as I could, and bought the car, and then got rid of the car, and mm -hmm. then just moved as close to the office as I could in a yeah. one bedroom studio apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for a lot of people, I'm like, is there a way for them not for it for them not to have to go all that way and have it fail them? Well, I, I think that there's certain life experiences um, uh, that you can't learn from other people. You just have to live, live, live it. And I think it's not so much about sort of uh, the monetary thing or the status thing. Um, uh, although I would probably say status, whether or not you should really seek it, uh, I think is one of those things that we all have to go through. I, I think everyone can talk about it. Don't seek attention. Don't seek fame. Don't seek all of these things. But we're we're human beings. We want to be well liked by other people. Um, and so I think that is probably one of them. But but in general, I think. The further away it is from anything you know and can relate to, I think um, we have to uh, experience parts of it. So, you know, one, one of the most amazing things that I get to do these days for my friends is um, from like back when, is I take them on these crazy experiences, uh, right? You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I get to see some of the coolest people in the world, whether it's musicians, but athletes and and so on, um, that uh, they're able to get a glimpse of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love it because, um, you know, they're looking at it with this kind of childlike shy, shy imagination and wonder about some, some things that I'm going through. But I also see the other side when they're like, is it really that much work? Wow, I would never want to do this. And it's it's quite mm. helpful um, because as we started out saying, they have this idea of what the life is. So I kind of like bringing them along on the journey where they get to see it. And then um, you can see that there are aspects of it that they like and then other aspects that they would never ever want to get into. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think it might be possible to kind of simulate that experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you have to experience it very much up close. Uh, certainly when you're talking about wealth and if you come from having none, I think almost everyone then would instantly need to experience a little bit of it mm -hmm. uh, to at least kind of understand whether that's important or not, especially if you get it uh, like we both did probably in our 20s and mm -hmm. so on. Had I, had I worked up until my 40s, I may have, kind of realized, hey, this isn't life. I'm I'm having children, I'm having my wife, this is amazing. I got this experience being a single guy trying to chase girls. Mm. Um, and all I'd seen was on MTV, how uh, all of the rappers uh, were throwing around money and uh, having 
20 or 30 girls at the nightclub and, and you know, hey, I wanted that too. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm really interested in is you said you got to nine months and you were depressed, mm -hmm. nine months after the sale. Yeah. There are so many people now, and this is why I asked about what the symptoms of that were. Mm. It's hard to know yeah. when we're drifting down the wrong path because it creeps up on us like yeah. a frog in a frying pan. Yeah. I, I remember a time working seven days a week and this feeling in my chest, of, I would describe it as like a, a, a subtle growing emptiness. Mm. And that was for me in hindsight, I was lonely yep. and I didn't know I was. Yeah. So those symptoms that you encountered at nine mm. months in, mm. in a way that someone might relate to them, what were those feelings? Um, I, I, th I think my entire life, as I mentioned, I, I've been struggling to fit in. Um, and I think it's something we probably share um, and have in common. And I somehow thought that this would help. And um, when the situation was new, um, it did feel like I found my new tribe. And it did feel like they, um, um, you know, this early excitement, everyone's calling you, everyone wants you to be part of something that you're before may not have been able to enjoy and may not uh, get those phone calls and get, may not get into the hottest nightclubs and, and the club promoters, like putting you on the list, plus 10 and all that stuff, the social currency. So it was thrilling. It was absolutely amazing. And and it, it truly was this kind of like, wow, I've made it kind of feeling. Um, but um, after you experience the 10th time, and I somehow had this idea that it would translate into this continuous feeling of that thing or translate into something more meaningful. I, I sort of realized that, no, wait a minute, it's the same experience again, but it's lost a little bit of a charm. And I started now getting the hangarounds that were trying to get in with me because, you know, they realized that maybe I would buy the bottles. Um, I was seeing people at the table come up and grab a glass and then run away, um, all of that kind of thing. And I, 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 it's slowly sort of dawned upon me that um, you could replace me by just anyone else that had um, the money and the connection that I had at that time, thereby the status, and it really wouldn't matter, um, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, I, I was I was listening to I think it's his name is Morgan Housel, um, the author who talks about psychology of money, and he kind of talked about it the 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 Ferrari syndrome, and he basically describes that uh, everyone uh, who aspires to buy a Ferrari uh, thinks of themselves and saying, oh well, one day when I'm in this Ferrari, everyone's going to look at this Ferrari and they're going to be amazed with me. Yet what we all do is we look at the Ferrari and we want to sit there. We actually don't care about the individual that's currently sitting in there. So this kind of, um, you know, paradox, um, so to speak. And and that's very much how I felt about my life. And as you, you're right, right, it, uh, you push that to a side and you say, well, surely this, you know, this is fun. And you have all these other people coming out and then you kind of bury it. And then it keeps coming up and then it comes up again and then it comes up more and more and more. And I didn't realize what it was at first because I was like, surely uh, I'm just being foolish. This is this is life. And everyone was rewarding me on the outside too, saying, wow, the life you live, this is amazing. How cool is not to be retired and just not having to do anything. Um, but I wasn't learning and I wasn't forming genuine connections with people. Um, I was just being, and uh, yes, I got status, 
But I realized I never did anything for status and I actually didn't care in the end uh, from being status. I cared about belonging, but not in that group. Uh, I wanted to be uh, in another group that cared about uh, me for being me. And you must have learned a lot now in hindsight about what the core components of you being sufficiently happy are. You've used a few of them there, like learning was one of them, mm. belonging. Mm. What, are the, what are the other core components of you think for someone, Just let, it's easier to just talk about ourselves here, yeah. for you to be stable? Um, I, I, I realized um, that I also need to be by, by, be allowed to be by myself. Right. Um, so I used to, in prior relationships, um, before meeting my wife, I used to think, you know, you're in a relationship, you constantly need to do something with the other party, and it was draining me. <laughs> and uh, I used to think there was something wrong with me uh, uh, because I wanted to be by myself for most of the time. And um, and being comfortable with that I am that way, <laughs> that uh, I thrive on loneliness. Uh, not all the time because I can feel lonely, um, but um, for quite a lot of time, per perhaps more so than most normal people like being lonely. Um, I, I'm just finding myself in that um, place where I just pursue whatever um, is top of mind for me. I am sort of in my own thoughts, uh, wondering, dreaming, uh, scheming, um, you know, um, that's been very important too because I used to think there was something wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, and then my wife, luckily, she's kind of the same. She does her thing and I do my thing and we love that we can do sh stuff with each other but we're also perfectly happy doing things on our own. Um, and um, um, that kind of taught me also quite a lot about myself in that because, uh, again, we are social animals uh, and I am too, by the way. I love... Um, hanging out with my friends, but I also love being by myself. So I think having a positive impact, um, not just on myself, I have to feel good about what I'm doing and know that it helps someone. Um, being able to learn, uh, being able to have fun while doing it, and um, then be in an environment where I can be lonely and then can come back mm -hmm. without that being sort of socially awkward. Uh, like uh, one of my favorite things that I can do with my close friends is I can literally, uh, let's say I would host a dinner. I could host a dinner uh, and I get an idea. It's very uncommon, but I'll get an idea and I'll walk away and disappear for an hour and I'll come <laughs> back. Um, and uh, that's like something that's kind of socially unacceptable in most situations. I do realize that. So I, I try to not do that. If I'm I'm with um, you know strangers because they won't th understand they won't won't understand but my real friends um, they know that about me and they're like totally cool so they just hang out and then when I come back I love that they're there and I love that they're hanging out with my kids or hanging out with my wife and doing other stuff and just being comfortable in in that that for me is like a perfect dinner is one where I would be social I would get an idea walk away think about it for a moment, get collect my thoughts, get energy, write it down and come back filled with energy from that. And then, you know, continue the conversation. Uh, that's a great example of something I love doing. So that's actually happened where you've been at a dinner party with friends and then you've had an idea and you've left you've, and then you've, 
my thing there is if I left, so the first thing is that I'm not sure my girlfriend would be very happy. <laughs> yeah. She understands that I'm like that. She understands that I love being alone. She understands that I get ideas at mm. unpredictable times and that mm. idea might suck me away. She probably wouldn't be that happy um, about it. Probably need to have a conversation about that. Um, but also if I went away, I would need to start working on the idea because mm. I'd get so energized about mm. the thing mm. that I'd then spend all night like, sorry guys. I Yeah. <laughs> That happens, by the way. It happens that I like finish halfway through the dinner and just disappear. Don't come back to, <laughs> I will say my friends usually, uh, even my close friends are like, uh, hey, we came to hang out with you, not like to see you for half an hour and then you disappearing. Uh, but it happens. Um, um, but I can obviously equally be there for all the dinner too. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it, it is one of the social oddities, I think, that I do um, with my close friends. Um, and uh, again, I, I know it's highly socially unacceptable in most situations. But, but if you really think about it as an introvert, uh, as I said, I usually thrive on, I need social elements, but I get most of my energy being by myself, uh, right? And, and so then, from an energy balance uh, perspective, being with people, it gives me a lot of ideas. It's great, but it also empties my energy reserve. Then going away, filling them up again, coming back, it is probably the ideal way for me. If you ask me like, what would a perfect night look like? It would probably be that. How do you then balance romance and relationships? And my partner, her, I think her attachment style and her love language is like quality time. Mm. So I often violate that love language because of what you've just described. Yeah. We could be Saturday in a park and then I think about something or get an email yeah. and then I'm off away on my own little world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the risk. Um, uh, again, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that my wife is kind of very similar to me in that regard. So she too leaves uh, dinners and has her ideas and, oh. and uh, you know, do that. So I think we're, we're more similar we try to make sure that one of us stay <laughs> because it gets very awkward otherwise um but but if, but if you're both like that do you have to have rules though for when you do bond? yeah yeah well that's the thing that's that's actually the harder thing for us is finding that quality time so i mean there's two parts you can either have i i like defaults so you can have like the default is we spend time together or the default is we're in a relationship but we don't spend time together and so you have to make time where you're actively finding something you both are interested in and you want to spend time on together. And I think we're more that. And I think most people probably with kids would recognize that because the kids come first in the relationship anyway. So your relationship to your significant other um, is probably, you know, uh, the second priority in that relationship and, and your ones to kids uh, are the first. So I don't think that's uncommon, but I think changing that default could be really important. Um, and again, if it's something that's really important to my wife, of course, I'm going to be present. Uh, she's really into horse riding. Uh, I'm not, but I know it matters to her greatly. So not only uh, will I try to speak to her every morning when she wants to talk about that, but I also show up for her competitions or I show up for important practices uh, that she has as well. Um, and um, there are aspects of the horsing thing where we can bond and, and have great quality time as well. Mm. Um, as it is, she loves hearing about my entrepreneurial endeavors. 
uh, as well. And and we find quality time through that. And then we have date nights like most couples do. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you're at the restaurant, you don't just really walk up and get away. Of course, you're gonna spend that quality time as well. Starting Spotify. When I heard the Spotify story, I I really wanted to meet you because I consider myself to be ambitious, but there are some challenges that I would just view as impossible. And at the time when you consider how the music industry w- was, mm. that it's ran by these big record labels predominantly and they own the music, to be a young kid from Sweden and believe that you could change that, for me, is a special type of delusion. <laughs> like it's like yeah. a, it's just an impossible task. It's yeah. what I just would have thought, okay, some things are the way they are. They're immovable objects. That is one of them. Yeah. Why didn't you think that was a impossible task? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, I think for several reasons, but I, I think that is the beautiful naivety of an entrepreneur as well, right? Uh, we move mountains. Uh, I'm sure Elon was, you know, even more insurmountable thing, electric cars, and there hadn't been a successful car companies for, uh, I think, a century or something, um, or at least, uh, you know, many, many decades in the U.S., and he managed to do that. So I think it's um, it, it's part illusion, uh, delusion, sorry. Um, but, but the other part, I think, um, also is that what I realized is before even committing to this idea, so the, the why not part, I probably spent 500 hours learning about this problem. And the scarcest resource we have in the world today by far is time. And when you have high quality people that spend thousands of hours on a problem, you find new solutions. And so the biggest um, thing for humanity, I believe, is simply that. Um, I believe we're capable of doing practically anything, but uh, there aren't that many people that um, can see these multi-dimensional things with that right experience that happens to come in at that right time. They're spending thousands of hours of trying to you know, needle in a haystack, see that opportunity through that very, very tiny prism. And, and um, um even today, when I think about some of my other businesses, it kind of worked the same way. So I started a healthcare business about five years ago, but I, I was spending, um, I think the first interview when I mentioned it uh, was in 2009. Um, and I started the company five years ago, uh, 2018. So I, I probably spent a decade thinking about this problem um, and I couldn't figure out a solution. 2008? Yeah, you, yeah. You, you started the company in 2008. But you no, started- no, no. I started the company, the healthcare company in 2018. 18. Right. But I started thinking about it 2008. Oh, okay. So, um, so I have a notebook with all my crazy ideas. Most of them amount to nothing. Uh, quite often, someone else comes along and dusts them, uh, and I'm happy, and it's amazing. Um, but every now and then, um, nothing happens for a great period of time. And I kind of feel that itch to maybe make a difference myself. And I and I say that because like the realization there was um, 
probably spend up until that point thousands of hours understanding the healthcare system, why it is the way it is, the incentive schemes and the what the NHS is doing and what someone else is doing and the public healthcare system, insurance, uh, business, direct to consumer things, the, the longevity curves of human beings, the disease curves, the costs curves, like all of those aspects um, about it, similar to how you're describing looking at rockets. Um, but, you know, imagine you spending a thousand hours a rocket, not just kind of casually researching it. I am sure you will find novel ways of how to attack the problem it may not be because, you know, if you're not a physicist, you may not come up with the next rocket engine, um, but you may find another twist uh, too on how to attack this problem. And I don't really think it comes down to that. And so uh, in the space of music, uh, I don't know anything about the music industry going into it, um, but I would argue a few years into it, I was probably one of the most foremost experts on copyright in the world around like the DMCA and um, what the US copyright regime looked like and what what um, other regimes looked like and how, um, you know, performance rights, societies, label rights and what kind of rights, mechanical rights, performing rights, uh, all of those different aspects. The, all the different co code IRC numbers, ISBN numbers, and how they related, and so on and so forth, and and um, um, you know, I, f I find like people either get too modeled in on the details and don't see the bigger picture, or they stay too top level picture to really see the nuance. And the question is, how do you dive deep enough where you see it and figure out which problems to solve in what order? Um, and and I was at that point. Um, by probably 2007, having spent a year on Spotify, but the team was super small, so it really wasn't a big commit at that time. And I wasn't sure at that time, but then I realized that, hey, this is actually possible uh, because we'd built the product that showcased the technology um, of what we were doing. And it felt like if you had all the world's music on your hard drive, so then the real problem ended up being, can we get the music industry to accept this? And to that, I had no idea, but I felt like this is so obviously, if this came out in the marketplace, what consumers would ask for. Now, the only question is, is the music industry going to allow this? And that took me another year and a half, 18 months to learn the answer. And it was completely binary. We almost died probably four times um, in that process and ran out of money and uh, record companies saying, no, no, this is never gonna happen until eventually one day the stars aligned and we were able to launch. Uh, but that was not a given, but it felt like the right bet to make because you know, it was a binary outcome. Either we'd fail, the price wasn't all too bad. If we would succeed, it was clearly so that at least this would resonate very well with consumers. Was there uh, any moments where you thought that it wasn't going to happen, i.e. conversations you had with record labels where someone very high up says absolutely no way? Uh, ma many times. Uh, I would say um, probably once every month or two over a two-year period, I thought that this probably won't pan out. Uh, and it was incredibly demoralizing. I, I usually joke, but like in the beginning of that process, I had hair and then in the end of it, I lost all of the hair. I probably gained 30 pounds in weight uh, during that period of time. Um, it was awful. Um, but through it all, my co-founder, Martin, uh, probably a factor of just who he is as an individual, but also probably because he didn't 
participate in these meetings uh, uh, kept being really upbeat, kept being, um, you know, an amazing support and said, don't worry about it. You're going to figure it out. And he just kept believing in me. And then he also said a few times, you know, when that wasn't enough, he said, don't worry about it. We'll figure out something else if this doesn't work out. It felt to me like I always had that safety net. And it was just the amount of push that I needed to do this. Um, and again, talking about not giving advice, but the advice that I do give to other people is to share the burden with someone. Uh, it is so important. Um, and I know I get most of the credit for Spotify, but it is really a team effort uh, from the Gustavs and Alex and all those people. But then also in the early days from uh, Martin in believing in me uh, and, and knowing uh, this kind of supernatural ability that I'm going to pull it off somehow. I must have told you a story which I guess has stayed with you about perseverance and the power of perseverance. The, the double-edged sword to that is sometimes it's right to quit as well. Yeah. And knowing when to persevere and knowing when you're just wasting your time, which is, as you said, the most important currency of all. Yeah. You know. That's where, you know, art meets science. Um, there is no scientific answer because it depends. It's an art to know uh, when something is futile and when something is worth doing. But I call it that sort of binary outcome, but uh, with uneven distribution, right? So if you think about it as a curve, even if it's 50-50 whether you succeed, but on the upside, you can win a lot more than you can lose. And all you can really lose is one time and the upside may be 100. Mm -hmm. It's probably worth uh, persuading. Obviously, it's that's the science part. The art thing is, okay, well, is it really 100 times? Is it 10 times? And, and have I already lost, but I'm just not aware of it? Um, that's the art. And also in that, I hear an optimism bias from two co-founders. The, the constant, oh, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. Mm. How important do you think that is? Especially, you know, you hire a lot of people. Is that something you're like looking for in the people that you work with, that bias towards, we'll figure it out? Um, I think, again, it depends on the role you're mm -hmm. hiring for. You need a team. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I think it's really important that you just don't surround yourself with just yes people or optimists. Uh, you need the naysayer in the room as well. You need the people who will balance it out and be the one who says, hmm, I'm not sure this is going to work out. Um, and and so often, I think that's the that's the important part. We keep talking about it with a CFO or salespeople, but again, you can have a deal-making CFO and a salesperson that's happy-go-lucky. Um, it may not be a great uh, combo. You may want the, the CFO to be skeptical about the sales pipeline and a happy-go-lucky uh, salesperson or the inverse, mm -hmm. maybe uh, like really diligent that and the CFO that maybe sort of like, don't worry about it, we will sort it out. Um, but I but I think so much about that is the subtleties. We, ha we don't have a perfect model of the world. Um, and uh, the more experience I have, it's a cheesy thing to say, but the, the less I realize that I actually know. Um, and so much of this are actually down in the nuances and most people are, um, above the nuances, don't really understand the issues well enough or too bogged down in the details to understand the bigger picture. Mm. And and going that sort of up and down, that's sort of super detail-oriented, um, but also being able to go up and see the big pictures, that is, um, and simplifying very complex concepts, I think some of the most amazing entrepreneurs in the world are experts at. Um, and that is a superpower. 
and uh, that is certainly one that I'm trying to hone mm-hmm. um, uh, and work on. Uh, but when you see it, like uh, Steve Jobs, when you take very complex things and people say he didn't understand engineering and technical problems, it's not true. Yes, he may not have been an engineer, he may not have known how to write code, but he certainly could empathize with what um, made an amazing engineer tick, uh, empathize with different technical solutions, will have different inputs and outputs. Um, and he understood it. And um, he was brilliant in taking very complex ideas and understanding how to make that resonate for the everyday person. These tales I hear of you sort of being outside record labels and waiting for the CEO to come out so that you could catch them or trying to accost, I don't know, the, the assistant outside and asking when the CEO was coming outside so that you could get a meeting with them. Yeah. Are these tales true? Um, as with many, they're probably exaggerated a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, Where but, is the truth? Uh, well, the, the, the truth is that certainly happened, but it wasn't, you know, I've heard uh, people recounted us that I slept outside of the the record labels kind of in a sleeping bag. That, that didn't happen. Uh, that happened another time in my career, but it wasn't... Um, it, it didn't happen there, but but it certainly happened that I'd book a week, fly to New York with no meeting booked, uh, with basically an open calendar and about 20 phone calls a day, just trying to figure out a time to get on the, the schedule of uh, a senior VP or a CEO, et cetera. That certainly happened. And that taught me another thing too, which is that these assistants, like you better befriend them because they are the keys to the kingdom. Um, and most people don't care about them at all, uh, but they're very influential. They're very powerful. Um, and, uh, and, and and you know, uh, that was hard in the beginning, but then I realized that um, they got to see me as an individual. I saw them as an individual and eventually you know, the, the, this this is not, uh, we tend to believe the world is more logical than what it is, but a lot of it is based on relationships. So eventually some of them started taking a liking to me. And so when there was the opportunity and they could prioritize 10 other things for that CEO to do, but I was there, I was friendly uh, and easy to work with, show up at no moment's notice, even if you know, it was 20 minutes before finding out about it, I would show up. Um, and so I was, I was easy to deal with. So take away all that complexity in order to achieve the outcome that I wanted to do. And sometimes that is as simple as it is. Just be consistent, be the easiest person to deal with, and you'd be surprised how many problems it solves. Did you invest your personal capital into starting Spotify? Because I, I read again that you'd spent pretty much all of your personal wealth to start yeah. the company. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, so I in- invested not all of it, but quite substantial amounts of it. Uh, and my co-founder invested even more, but he obviously had a much larger sum of money um, from the beginning. Um, yeah, so all in all, I think we invested about $10 million uh, into this um, by ourselves, uh, which was also crazy because, you know, back then, today, $10 million into a startup just was, it isn't a big number. There are many startups that have done that before. But doing that on a seed stage uh, back in 2007, uh, that just was unheard of. It was usually 500K seed check sums, et cetera. What if it hadn't worked out? What would have been the personal implications for you financially? Uh, The personal implications, I went from not having to have a job to then probably having to go back to having a job. Um, So I basically took that security uh, that I built up, uh, that 22 I'm set for life, and I gave that up um, in a moment's notice. Um, and um, 
yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know what to say. I think uh, it, it, from a purely logical point of view, it was probably a terrible decision. Um, but betting on myself and betting on yourself would probably be, again, uh, I say I should give advice, but it is probably <laughs> the the best advice I could give many people is, is you know, because especially those that want to invest in various startups, et cetera, and I, I all, but they may not have a lot of money. And then I always say, well, why, why don't you just, better on yourself instead why don't you just try to like work for one of these startups like you said and and maybe take a little bit more equity and a little bit less pay and take out of your cash instead because that way you increase the likelihood hopefully if you know you're good of the company being a success and it just feels like the more prudent thing to do and so i had a sneaky feeling that that was the right thing to do uh, but investing as much probably wasn't the smartest. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Thing to do. Spotify goes on to... Be, I mean, success is probably an understatement. And I know the journey to that success had multiple um, near-death experiences to get there. Mm. One of the key things, key moments I reflect on as a Spotify customer um, is when Apple launched their competing product, Apple Music, in 2015, I believe mm. it was. Yep. And there was lots of articles saying that this would be the death of Spotify. Yeah, I think I was even concerned. As a yeah. very loyal Spotify user, yeah. I thought, fuck, you know, they have all the phones. Yeah. They have, they're kind of like the mafia. Yeah. They could just squash you. Yeah. Most companies, when Apple comes into their territory, shake in their boots. Yeah. What was it like in your office that day when Apple Music launched a competing product? You know, when you live in the thick of the fire, you're not concerned about the things that everyone else is concerned about. Um, I, I usually say public perception lacks about six to 12 months what's actually going on. And and so in our case, we'd known that Apple was going to launch something for probably the better part of a year because they had the Beats acquisition beforehand and we were hearing all sorts of rumors, et cetera, about what it was. So. Absolutely, you have to be worried when one of the greatest companies on earth decides to compete with you. So we were concerned about it. Um, uh, and we were kind of doubling down on what our positioning w was going to be. So you kind of like double and triple check whether or not, um, you know, you were deluding yourself into believing things to be true. Um, and, and so, for instance, in our case, one of the big things, um, we, we had a, some strategic pillars that we were focusing on. One of them we called ubiquity um, because we always knew this would eventually be the case. We, we thought that consumers would value the ability to work across all devices and all ecosystem. And our bet would be that um, any competitor we might have had would actually focus on reinforcing their own ecosystem and not care about all the other stuff. So the primary reason they were into 
a music service would be to make their own devices better, not to make the world's best music service. Mm. And um, and so you know that's why we made such an effort of integrating into cars, integrating into all sorts of uh, weird devices, smart fridges, whatever you might think. Um, and so so it was kind of like reiterating that, but I felt pretty good about that position um, and going back. And then there's always the sort of like, what if they figured out something that we just wouldn't have thought about? Uh, and I remember we were constantly talking to the product teams about this. Uh, and uh, like, what, what what if they come up with this? And we're literally trying this every, game theorizing every possible angle um, on it. Um, um, but I think at the end of the day, we, we kind of went through the thousand scenarios kind of thing. We knew we had prepared as well as we could. Um, we um, anticipated a certain type of product. There was this kind of 1% or 10% chance, whatever you want to quantify it as, where we'd just be wrong and they'd come up with something that widely superseded any of our expectations. Um, but that very day, remember we'd been preparing for that day for so long. So the first reaction was kind of them announcing it, which we expected them to do. Uh, and then seeing the walkthrough of the product and realizing that, okay, well, we prepared for this, we thought about this, et cetera. And so weirdly enough, as the rest of the world kind of like gasped for air, um, we were thinking about it, okay, well, this was what we expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and back to that point, distribution was the amazing thing. They hadn't come up with something on the product side that we just didn't anticipate, um, but it was really just about distribution. And there was nothing we could do to guard ourselves against it, um, but we felt like we had a superior experience um, on the personalization side, the fact that you know, if you have a Windows machine and an iPhone, um, Spotify would work, um, but Apple Music um, wouldn't at that time. Um, so there were many of those things that we, um, I thought, had a better positioning than they had. I've, I've long thought that. I've tried both. I mean, I tried it when it came out and I couldn't stick to it. Um, and I think me and my friends who were in my music group, we all concluded that the personalization, how Spotify understands mm. me, yeah. is really the thing. It's hard to know why you do what you do as a consumer. Yeah. But from analyzing it a bit more deeply, um, it just felt like I'd built, there was a lot of investment I'd done to my playlists yeah. and all those things. But Spotify just knew me better. It seems to have much more data than um, data on me and understands me and is more of a bespoke solution to me than Apple was. And also the, the user experience is not great. And I just can't get past that. I mm. just So I tried it and I bounced. I, I, I just stuck with Spotify. Um, Apple... I used the word mafia earlier on. A lot Mm. of people don't know this, but they take 30% revenues on pretty much every new app in the store. They've rejected your audiobook app multiple times. Mm. Um, There's a rumor going around that they even delay how quickly you can release Mm. new updates of your app and delay how that reaches phones. What's your opinion on Apple and what they do and how they conduct themselves? Well, um, it's um, as a consumer, uh, let's start off with Apple is a, fantastic company and they make amazing products. Uh, I really do believe that. Um, I've been a Mac user since I can't even remember, probably late 90s when I could first afford one uh, all the way to now. And obviously you use the iPhone and Apple Watches and all that stuff. So let's start with that. And I think that's hard to square then that there's this other company that's fiercely um, focused on just... um, itself and constantly 
trying to do things by itself and not working well with others. Um, and um, those uh, are perhaps two different sides of the same coin. Um, but, um, you know, the the way that manifests itself, um, I think that it's a company in many cases that still sees itself as an underdog, <laughs> uh, but don't realize that they become Goliath. And so many of the tactics that made it the rebel kind of thing uh, are now stifling innovation and it's really hurting consumers to a great extent uh, with the 30% you talked about, with the fact that, you know, a Spotify can't, um, or any developer, if you don't pay the 30%, you can't even speak to your consumers. It is kind of absurd. Um, so, you know, there, there's a ruthlessness um, on the business side of Apple um, and and perhaps it's always been so, I don't know. I never got the opportunity to meet Steve Jobs, but um, um, where just from an ethos point of view, it's just not me. Um, and um, um, I, I have a hard time squaring that with me as the consumer and mm -hmm. me as the business leader. Um, and needless to say, I, I, I do believe that Apple can and should play fair. And I think it would be way better for the world if they did. Um, and I think um, that it would actually help them in many regards to switch their tactics and realize that they are the Goliath at this point and not David. Um, and so, yeah. One of the things I want to close on um, is your philosophy. So I guess it's the same answer because Spotify's philosophy towards what's made it successful will probably be in many respects a reflection of your philosophies towards business and, and um, more broadly towards life. But when I sit here, and I think a lot of people will sit here and say, um, there's clearly something unique about you, about the way you approach problem solving, problems, life, business, all of those things that has been, that has defined you and set you apart. Are you aware of what that is, what those principles are? Um, no, I don't think so. But I think you're right in that, um, you know, the, the, the way I would describe Spotify um, to people, you, you're right that it is scary sometimes watching Spotify, uh, f trying to watch it from a distance and not just be in it because sometimes it's doing things where I'm like, how did how did people know that we were supposed to do it this way? Um, and it would be how I would approach solving a problem and it's kind of how, um, you know, we've internalized certain things. But the best way is it's 17 years old now mm. and it is a teenager that's liberating itself Mm -hmm. So it's not 100% me. Uh, in fact, it is this much broader, uh, different being. Uh, there are aspects of it that um, hasn't taken after me um, at all in um, product development. You know, Gustav is a formidable product leader as an example, and Alex is a formidable business leader. And the two of them are now leading more of the day-to-day, -day, and they're certainly instilling their personal uh, values and their personal uh, perspective of the of the company too, which I think they're totally entitled to doing, having been with the company for twelve plus years, both of them. Um, but it, it is interesting seeing it because we're approaching things now in a way uh, I wouldn't always do. It's not inconsistent with important principles of mine, but but uh, it's certainly not directed. And the other part is I started as as a twenty three year old, mm -hmm. and the twenty three year old Daniel, while many parts are the same. Uh, the 40-year-old Daniel with um, two kids, um, having seen that, have changed perspectives as well. 
uh, I have a different feeling about uh, work and and the importance of that in my life. Still very important, but may not be the sole most important thing that I do. Just to mention one, and so it has similarities, uh, but there's differences to me as an individual too. But I think if you compare me, the 23-year-old Daniel, the 30-year-old Daniel, the 40-year-old Daniel, um, I've evolved too. And and candidly, I'm in that period at the moment where I'm perhaps trying to figure out who the 40-year-old Daniel really is, because it's a different one than the 30-year-old one. Um, Maybe it's subtleties, but um, I think in quite a big way also, just thinking about something like culture, the 23-year-old Daniel um, culture was having a ping pong table. Uh, 30-year-old Daniel uh, would have said, yeah, culture is important, but didn't really understand why. And the 40-year-old Daniel uh, would be, um, you know, the 30-year-old Daniel would be more strategy than culture, actually. And the 40-year-old Daniel is all about culture, almost to the point where strategy is um, secondary, if not even tertiary to that. Um, 40-year-old Daniel's all about culture? Yeah, uh, way more so. What is the culture? Well, that's the amazing thing because it is the most scalable thing done right uh, of a company. Um, And it's the hardest thing, right? Because it is everything and nothing. It is every positive action that's happening in the company. It's every negative action of a company. Every person that's joining, every person that's leaving is impacting culture. And so um, in its essence, I believe culture is about rewarding the positive behaviors you want to see in the company and obviously dissuade the negative What are the positive behaviors you want to see? Well, one of them is taking risks um, and failing. And how do you do that when you have eight or 9,000 people inside of a company responsibly? How do you, uh, when the common status quo is we don't like failure, Um, you don't get promoted based on failure. You get promoted based on being successful. Um, Annie Duke has this thinking in bets. She talks about, I love that, is thinking about poker ships on the table. And and she said one time when, when we spoke, she said to me, it's like um, a company is like um, uh, everyone has ships at the table. We just don't know how many we have. And so the people that have been successful have way more. So they have leniency and allowance in the culture of any organizations to do more than someone who just started um, and perhaps have a less lesser ones. And if you failed enough times, what's naturally going to happen is that you won't have the same agency in a large organization to impact things too. So then the, the counterpoint to that would be, well, how, how do you then um, create an environment where people um, are allowed to take risks and then balance that with say a Spotify at this point where we have a huge amount of responsibility too. We have tens of millions of creators that have their livelihood of the platform. So we can't just experiment with how we're paying out and so on and so forth, right? And uh, 550 million consumers, uh, we have to be responsible with their data. We can't um, you know, put new things in front of them without testing them and so on and so forth. And so um, there, there's this constant tension between uh, being innovative, taking risks um, and, um, you know, at the same time, obviously being responsible. And and that's hard, but that's all about culture. I'm absolutely obsessed with the subject of culture because I really think it's an under underappreciated factor in, um, in why businesses are the way they are. I think you could basically take 
a person off the street and the culture you drop them in determines the behavior you'll, you'll get from them. Yeah. And so, um, and having sat here and interviewed like Sir Alex Ferguson's ex-teammates, yeah. you just come to learn that Sir Alex Ferguson's greatness wasn't a strategy. Right. They all say to me, I remember Patrice and Everest said to me that he walked in on a, we were playing Arsenal yeah. on a Sunday in London. Yeah. And he walked in and just said, lads, listen, beautiful weather outside, don't fuck up my Sunday and walked out. <laughs> because his thing was about <laughs> no. management. He just had this culture. Yeah. The other thing they said to me, which has always stayed with me is, Rio Ferdinand said to me, how many times do you think he came into the training ground dressing room yeah. in 26 years? Like, I don't know, he go, they said twice. Really? Didn't need to come in there. The culture was in there. Yeah. And it was self-policing when it's strong, yeah. right? Yeah. But you're right. Sports teams, do, the ones that do really well. Uh, I was being told an Arsenal story that I probably can't share, but uh, you could see bits and pieces of Mikel, uh, you know, how he's pushing that team culture at the moment too, which seems very fascinating uh, with some of the almost antics uh, he seems to be doing this uh, all or nothing mm -hmm. season that was, um, I think, last season um, as well. Um, so you can see that. And I love studying that with sports teams because, you know, it's 11 players on the pitch. How do, how do you make these people gel together um, and form a team? Um, hugely important thing. So I agree. But, but also, like, imagine if you had 11 new players. Mm. Uh, um, you know, can, <laughs> yeah. Can you even form or Chelsea <laughs> these days? Yeah. Too, right. Um, can you even uh, uh, create a culture that way, uh, or is it something that should be done intentional? Um, I mean, if you're growing a company and growing the number of employees by fifty percent two years in a row, uh, most of your employees probably won't have been here even for a year. Mm. Um, it will change things. Whereas if you make something where it's more of a gradual change. Um, it will. Uh, it's easier. I'm not saying it's tri trivial, but to to kind of have the same culture. Mm. Um, and I think many founders uh, make that mistake when they overhire. They don't understand the implication of the culture. They just look at sort of more warm bodies. But it's all these other subtle things that starts breaking. Daniel, we've got a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest. And I love this question because um, you don't like giving advice. So yeah. this is a perfect one for you. Um, what is the advice that someone could have but didn't give you at 21 years old that would have made you more successful at the thing you now do? I, um, I think uh, we, we spoke about it. Um, I've gone through iterations of uh, trying to learn from other people and model that. Uh, a huge part of that has been kind of um, optimizing for my strengths and not covering my weaknesses. Uh, and I wish um, that I um, realized much earlier on that perhaps my superpower is that I'm pretty good all-arounder and not particularly good at anything. So I used to think, for instance, that I had this brilliant, um, you know, I modeled myself on the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world of like, I need to run every product meeting. I need to be the best product person in the world. It just wasn't me. And it took me a while to realize that and be comfortable um, saying that, right? Um, um, but um, I, I have realized that I do like a lot of different things. I love learning about new things. And perhaps that is my superpower uh, to, realize that the person who's doing PR, that's quite an interesting thing to learn about. Uh, there are interesting things about employment law, how that came to be and trying to understand that. And you, the list goes on and on and on. And 
I love that. Um, and I wish I would have probably understood that earlier about myself because that would have allowed myself to uh, not model so much on other people, but but um, somehow uh, be more introspective and listen to myself. And I think that's really one of the things I, I take away from you, said very eloquently, is that your proof that entrepreneurs can buck a number of different trends, you know, and still be wildly successful. And that evidence means to someone like me that there's no such thing as a entrepreneur in yeah. terms of how they operate, what they're interested in, yeah. um, and that there's many ways to be a successful entrepreneur. And it really, from what you've just said there, the most surefire way of becoming a successful entrepreneur is actually looking inward versus looking outwards at yeah. like, oh, how does Elon do it? Or how does yeah. Mark do it? Or how yeah. does Daniel do it? Yeah. Um, which stays with me a lot because it's really changed my thinking on a few really important things that I think I've been yeah, I've been limit I've been limiting myself on. Mm. Um Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This thank you fun. for building such a great business and b building a business that that is um I guess it even though you're number one, still embodies the kind of first principle underdog mentality. There's something about Spotify, which is, it feels, I know you probably don't like this word, but I don't know if you do, but it feels more like a family mm. because I've met a lot of the people there. Mm. And I know a lot of them. Yeah. And they're like really nice people that are very open books. It doesn't feel like a big corporate to me. Yeah. Um, it's Thank very you. humble in its, in, its, in its approach, but it's also very ambitious. Yeah. And it strikes that balance really wonderf wonderfully well. And it's, some, it's a company and a brand that I deeply resonate with for that reason. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think, um, you know, you talked about wanting to do work that brings good to the world. The good to the world that Spotify has done, in my view, is inquantifiable. Because, I mean, music is a, is a wonderful thing. Oh, but yeah. what you're doing now in podcasting as well and how yeah. you've really owned and driven that industry forward for people like me to have these longer form, more contextual conversations. I think it's hard to measure the good that's done to the world, but it's certainly a, Thank you. an important one. Thank you, that means a lot to me. And, and you're right, um, you know, it's about being humble while doing it, but um, you know, ambition and humbleness may not seem like they go hand, hand in hand. And so I think you capture the essence of what we like Spotify to be at its best, which is super ambitious, but yet humble, humble uh, with all of its past success, all of that stuff that we're still learning. Super curious. I, I, I've never told this story before, but when I went, I went on a trip to Sweden mm. and I was there with some of your colleagues. So Gustav, who's head of product, right? And yep. Alex, who's head of business, business everything yep. that makes money. Yep. And I was there with Shaquille as well, who's a good friend and colleague of mm -hmm. yours and has been for a long time. Yep. And they sat me down at a table for a for about 30 minutes or an hour yeah. and said, you're a podcaster, Steve. Yeah. Tell us everything we need to know about podcasting. Yeah. How can we make um, Spotify better for you as a podcaster? Yeah. And for the very people at the top of Spotify to sit and listen so intently mm. to me mm. and then to act upon what I said and then mm. give me feedback weeks later and say, okay, we're now you know working on this, having yeah. listened to you. It's not something that a big corporate that was arrogant or very sure of themselves or had lost that mentality would ever do, mm. that stayed with me. Because mm. it's hard to do that when you get big, to yeah. really be curious and humble. And that's exactly what Spotify is. So I wish I wish you all the luck in the world and I'm sure you won't need it because you've got a wonderful culture of um, people and great people around you. But 
just wanted to say thank you for that. Well, no, thank you. And I mean, again, yes, we listen, but it's also because you are innovating uh, on your side. And uh, uh, with all the aspects, even seeing your studio here today, it's kind of like bringing it to the next level. So that's <laughs> that's amazing to see that you're able to do that. Amazing to bring these conversations to the world and we all get the benefit to learn from them as well without maybe having the opportunity like you have to meet all these uh, individuals <laughs> too. And that's gonna bring a lot of growth journeys uh, for a lot of people too. So thank you. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.